This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. A race can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, What's let's get paid. What's Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm D and ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today, I have a special episode. It's going to be cool because I got one of my bros with me and I have his resident with me. It's going to be phenomenal and we're getting very cartsy here. One of my favorite drugs, TNK, we're going to have a little talk about something that blew my physician's mind. And some people even ask, how the heck does study even get approved? But I'm not going to do a lot of talking today, guys. I like to let the experts do their thing because I'm just a little, you know, you know, puny ED pharmacist. And when I read the study... I read it the first time and I text my buddy Nick and said, hey, man, I'm intrigued by this. But am I just stupid or is this something that's, that's pretty cool? So for the, for the audience that haven't met you guys yet, go ahead and introduce yourself. So my name is Alexandra Cruz Pavon, but I go by Alex. So feel free to call me that. I am a PGY2 cardiology pharmacy resident here at UMass Memorial Medical Center, originally from Puerto Rico. So a long way from home. And I am happy to be here. Perfect. Hi, guys. Um, I'm Nick Cervati. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called these days uh, at <laughs> PharmD to LAD. Um, Jim and I did PGY1 together, so we, we're going a little bit back here. Um, I'm the current CBICU pharmacist at UMass Medical Center and the RPD for the CARDS program. Perfect. So I'm intrigued by this. Let's go ahead and talk about this study. The, the, the stream two trial. Um, this is going to be like a little journal club again. But before we jump into that, I have a few announcements and you guys know I'll, I'll try to be very brief with this. For anyone who lives in a under a rock, you guys know I've been doing an Empire Conference for the last couple of years. We're getting ready to go and do our third annual Empire uh, RX Conference in Charlotte. It's going to be completely independent. We have no other groups going to be with us. It's just going to be us. It's going to be the most value that you can probably find. You probably can't even go on a nice date for how we price these tickets, especially for residents. Uh, two days, a bunch of craziness. Uh, leave your, your dress shoes and your, your sports coats at home and pick up a beer and a glass of wine. That's how we're going to do it down in Charlotte on April 26th and 27th. It's going to be phenomenal. I can talk a lot about that, but I won't. Go ahead and check it out on our website. Again, EmpireRx/conference.com. Go ahead and look. Trust me, we have resident awards. We have EM Pharmacist of the Year. We have EM, again, Pharmacotherapy Champion of the Year for our docs, our nurses, everyone else like that. We have EM Research. If you don't want to do a poster, leave that crap. We have a 10-minute presentation for you. Uh, if you want to do your, if you can't come, but you're intriguing, you want to present at an international EM conference, Empower Encore is going to be a thing for you. Check it out on the website. I can do this all day, guys. But let's go ahead and jump into this episode. So we're here to talk about the STREAM-2 trial. This is half-dose tenecteplase, or primary percutaneous coronary intervention in older patients with ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, and it's a randomized open-label trial. So to provide some sort of background, current STEMI guidelines recommend a pharmacoinvasive strategy if timely PCI is unavailable or less than 120 minutes or two hours. And previous trials, specifically STREAM-1, was one that studied that pharmacoinvasive strategy with tenecteplase and looking at a primary outcome of death, shock, heart failure, or reinfarction within 30 days. 
comparing tenecteplase to primary PCI. But during that trial, they actually saw a red flag for, with increased intracranial hemorrhage in patients above 75 years of age. So this prompted a protocol amendment to do half the dose of tenecteplase in that patient population. And after that adjustment to the protocol, they did not see any further intracranial hemorrhages. So that prompted then the STREAM2 trial to look a little bit further into this patient population, older patients with half-dose tenecteplase. So Alex, what, what evidence do we have leading up to this from the vastness of trials regarding TA and K in STEMI for patients 75 or older? So like I mentioned, the STREAM1 trial, there was a sub, subset of that population that had patients above 75 years old. We also have the ASCENT trials. So the ASCENT2 trials enrolled over 16,000 patients and 12.4 of those were 75 years or older. Then we have ASCENT3 with around 6,000 patients and 13% of those were 75 or older. So overall, we, ha- we do have some literature out there looking at this patient population in terms of TNK. Okay, but all really specifically with full-dose TNK like we would in terms of standard STEMI dosing. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was, Stream 1 was really one of the first trials to introduce this, the idea of this half-dose uh, to maybe mitigate risk while still getting some benefit. Correct. Okay, all right. Then looking a little bit further into the patient population in this Stream 2 trial, they enrolled 604 patients. Initially, they were looking at over 70 years of age, but then adjusted the protocol. So overall, look at patients 60 years or older that had symptom onset within three hours random to randomization and looking at 12-lead ECG in terms of looking for STEMI criteria for inclusion. All right, so you mentioned the protocol was amended. Mm-hmm. Tell us more. What happened? So initially, they had slow recruitment, and they also based the adjustment in terms of the age cutoff of changing it from 70 to 60 Mm. because of what they saw in the ascent trial series. So they had seen an increase of bleeding in around that cutoff of the age 60 years or older. So this amendment was around 2018, so around one year into the enrollment, and it lasted through 2022 in the STREAM2 trial. Which I thought, I thought it was interesting because the authors did their own internal systematic review of their trial, the ASCENT trials. It's not published. It's not something that they got peer-reviewed and is out there on their own. It was their internal review that led to this protocol amendment to lower the age to 60, which I think just continues to kind of uh, deviate from the initial protocol amendment of the, their initial stream one trial, which was, okay, we saw that there was an excess in 75 or older. Let's have the dose for those patients. Then they create stream two initially. Oh, it's 70 years old. Now, magically you have slow enrollment, you know, granted it was around, you know, uh, it's understandable as an investigator funded, you have slow enrollment. You want to make sure you're going to meet power, but they would then once again, you know, reanalyze the data and find a different age cutoff once again. So it's now our third age cutoff, dropping it all the way down to 60 years of age. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. For sure. Yeah. And then on the other hand, looking at the exclusion criteria for this trial, of course, if expected PCI um, within 60 minutes is a possibility, then that's our preferred um, guideline reperfusion therapy. They also excluded patients with previous cabbage that have left bundle branch block 
cardiogenic shocks with killer class four patients with a weight less than 55 kilograms, either known or estimated. And we'll get a little bit more into that when we talk about the dosing. Also excluded patients with uncontrolled hypertension, which they defined as a systolic over 180 or diastolic over 110. Known prior stroke or TIA, who had received anticoagulation within 12 hours with either unfractionated heparin, anoxaparin, and or bivalrudin, or current use of an oral anticoagulant such as warfarin or anoac, which is significant, especially thinking in our current patient population, older patients, a lot of have comorbidities such as AFib, have other indications to be on oral anticoagulation. So just thinking a little bit about that when going through some of these exclusion criteria. Others included patients with active bleeding, known CNS damage, who had a major surgery within the past two months, who had prolonged CPR of greater than two minutes within the past two weeks. Which I think that's, you can argue, prolonged at two minutes. Yeah. (laughs) That was their definition. Also excluded patients with severe renal insufficiency, uh, dementia, and a slew of other exclusion criteria such as allergic reactions to nectoplase or other study drugs like clopidogrel, anoxaparin, etc. Yeah, so it really looked kind of interesting at this point because, again, exclusion, some of the things we expect, it, it, it makes sense. And the inclusion, it seems to be pretty much everyone else outside of that that was greater than 60 years old. But as we like to say, playing some uh, statistical gymnastics when it comes to figuring out the age range, it's like, oh, First, we started at 75. Let's go at 70. Oh, let's go down. Let's go down to 60 and continue to, to, to drop it low here. So I'm, I'm intrigued with that. But again, they said they needed 600. They got 600. So I guess whatever you have to do to, to get there. So let's look a little deeper because, again, this this concept of half dose is actually kind of foreign to a lot of my docs and probably to a lot of people out there. Let's talk about their treatment regimen and what they what they looked at, because this is very key to understanding the study, because if you don't understand what they actually did, you're going to freak out when you look at the title of the study. <laughs> Definitely. So getting into more specifics with the TNK dosing or tenecteplase. So for patients that were at least 55 kilos to less than 60, they use 15 milligrams, and they had other um, doses based on weight, so 60 to 70, 70 to 80, 80 to 90, or 90 or greater, then they used 25 milligrams. So it was weight-based based on where the patient weight was within those groups, and essentially half the dose of what our standard TNK dosing would be. Yeah. And these are administered as a bolus over 5 to 10 seconds. So then they, the patients were randomized to either receive the tenecteplase or primary PCI. And those who received the tenecteplase, they were also eligible to for uh, angiography. And that was performed after the lytic was infused. I think that's key here, too, because a lot of times, yeah. you know, it's a, an assumption you're going to get a lytic and then job done. Right. You have 50 percent, you know, resolution SD elevations, job is done, nothing, nothing left to do. In reality, you really should follow that through with some coronary angiography. Doesn't mean that you're going to have an intervention. Doesn't mean a PCI is going to be performed, but you're at least going to assess, you know, uh, patency and you know how effective that was on an angiographic level. I think that that's key here is that while rescue PCI was something that could be done should the patient not meet 50% ST elevation reductions uh, within that first kind of 60 to 90 minutes it was still mandatory for the most part that those patients were going to get angiography within 24 hours. 
Um, you know, the other thing too on the the adjuncts that they received, I think was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Most guidelines do not recommend loading Plavix at all over 75 if you receive a lytic. That's a little bit different for this trial. I know that they ended up lowering the age that they were included. First, it was 70, then it was 60. You know, so you have a, a range of people that 60 to 75 year old that traditionally would have received a 300 milligram load of Plavix. But this entire study, which included what, roughly a fourth of the study was over 75 they received 300 milligrams of Plavix, so they received somewhat of a pseudo-load to go along with that lytic. It's a little bit different, I think, than, than standard practice. And, you know, Jimmy, I'd throw this back to you. I don't see a lot of Lovenox when we give lytics. I don't know if it's something your shop does. I think there's obviously that kind of fear that lingers, have something that's fast on, fast off. I feel like Alex and I see way more heparin, and I would be honestly a little bit flabbergasted if someone looked at me and said, oh, yeah, what's the Lovenox dosing to go with this TNK? Um, So I was a bit surprised that that was mandatory within this trial as well, although we know the evidence is stronger with Lovenox. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, familiarity and comfort, I, I don't see it a whole lot, I'll be honest. Yeah, I have. I'm gonna be honest with you. I've probably given, I've probably given probably four or five thousand boluses of heparin, five thousand myself. Uh, I know I've given that. I have never when like you know what guys, we're gonna farm so hard today, and it says, let's go get some some low. I've never done it. Um, so when I first saw it, I was like, hmm, I wonder how that's gonna pan out because realistically, this can be your protocol. But what's gonna happen when you drip and ship these people and they get what they have to get to? Oh, screw that, that Lovidox. I'm going to go ahead and give him heparin anyway. And we'll talk about that later, but that's something that is a fear for me. And it's just something that I'm not too fond of. And I just never done it. I thought about it. I said, like, I've never done this. And it's never been asked of me, even amongst all of the trainees I've worked with. It's never been asked of me. So I was really intrigued by that part when I, when I saw all the adjuncts. And I was like, eh. <laughs> this is going to be intriguing to see how it pans out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and interestingly, the, these adjunct therapies were specified for the patients in the lytic group, but for patients in the primary PCI group, they just adhere to local guidelines. So something yeah. interesting yeah. to mention as well. Yeah, I thought that was wild. Let's talk about the, the, the timing, because like, I think that's one thing that people need to kind of remember, because when I think about this 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 type of intervention, it reminds me of people who goes and get appies. So again, you know, you can give antibiotics for an appy and you can kind of delay the time you go and get a, get surgery. This to me kind of made me think that, well, it's a little bit more, you can use it by itself, but that was another kind of parallel that for me, when I'm explaining to my docs, this is how this is like, but they didn't know like how soon do these people go for angiography in, in both of these groups. Yeah, and it's interesting looking at the European guidelines and the standard, what, what they recommend for door-to-needle time for yep. lytics being so short, 10 minutes. Okay. And let's see, looking at the timing in these patients. Yeah, you're, I mean, your median time from symptoms to randomization was roughly the same. It was about an hour and a half. And then once they were randomized, the TNK was given pretty quickly, um, you know, within 10 minutes. Um, you know, so if we're thinking about that, basically symptoms to TNK, you know, just shy of two hours. And then, you know, sheath insertion is, is kind of how it was defined there. So one, one pres- would presume they went for angiography within another 80 minutes uh, from randomization there. So within roughly, what does that put us at? Three hours. 
these patients were then receiving angiography to decide on whether or not, uh, you know, further intervention was needed, um, which I, I, you know, was a pretty good percentage of patients that ended up receiving uh, stenting despite receiving lytic beforehand. I think it was of the 400 or so patients that received TNK, 86% of them went for angiography, um, whether that was rescue or not. And almost all of those that went did receive a stent. Um, so there was still residual disease that required intervention despite this kind of, quote, pharmacoinvasive strategy, right? This, we're not going to be able to get you there within one hour, which is a tighter window than if you present mm-hmm. to a PCI center, right? And I think that's something to remember. Yep. If you present to a PCI center, we're, we're demanding within two hours that you, that you have intervention, right? In this case, we're saying if you present to a facility and you are not going to be able to get primary PCI within 60 minutes, within that quote-unquote golden hour, then you should consider administering lytic beforehand as a means to facilitate uh, PCI shortly thereafter. Uh, I think that's different. I don't, you know... I think that's probably a different practice than we see a lot in America. And maybe that's totally different in a rural setting. I don't, I haven't practiced in a rural setting where, you know, you're a bit farther out. And I imagine that this is uh, much more popular um, in those areas. But yeah, that was something that was, that was intriguing to me. But l- let's look at like some of the, you guys put a lot of that stuff here and all of this document we'll put on our, our web. But let's go into like some of the, the design because I actually thought it was, it was pretty decent. So, as far as like, you know, where they do this stuff, because people are wondering like, where the hell did this get approved, so? Yes, so this was an investigator-initiated, open-label, randomized, multi-center studied, and it was done in 49 centers across 10 countries, including Canada, France, Spain, Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Australia, Russia, Serbia, and Montenegro. So overall, different countries, Uh, from August of 2017 to September of 2022. And we had mentioned initially they had set a goal of 600 patients to be able to achieve statistical power. And then they played around with the age or the statistical gymnastics that you had referenced (laughs) to change the cutoff from the 70 to 60 years with that protocol amendment. So that was in terms of where the study was conducted, then looking at what our efficacy endpoints were. Their primary endpoint was actually ST resolution of 50% or greater, and they also had a 30-day composite outcome of death, shock, heart failure, or reinfarction, which was not powered but was similar to the Stream 1. That was what the Stream 1 had used as their, as their primary outcome. And they had uh, different definitions for shock, such as the systolic pressure less than 90, vasopressor requirements, uh, symptoms of end-organ damage. For heart failure, they defined that as patients requiring diuretics with pulmonary edema or congestion, or based on pulmonary capillary wedge pressure as well. And then reinfarction related to PCI or surgery, specific definitions as well, based on whether it was less than 48 hours after PCI or greater than 48 hours after PCI or cabbage, based on troponin elevations. The safety endpoints were done as an intention to treat, and these included stroke and non-intracranial bleeding. So I guess what was our average patient that we enrolled? So looking at our average patient, let's say a 71-year-old male, around two-thirds of these patients were male, with comorbidities including hypertension and diabetes, Patients with presenting with inferior semi, around 60% of these patients, and mostly kill of class one without any signs of congestion 
and having pretty good blood pressures with a systolic around 130, TIMI risk score of a four, and this corresponds to around a 20% risk of 14-day death, uh, new MI, recurrent MI, or ischemia requiring repeat interventions. So I think overall, you know, the, the author's comment, you know, comparing their initial trial stream one versus stream two, they took a sicker patient population, Timmy risk score going from two to four. You know, if we remember the max score on Timmy is seven. So we're kind of middle of the park with a, with a risk being the highest around 40% of that 14 day composite. So I think despite being mostly killed class one, having no signs of congestion, right, that ranges to killed class four, which is, you know, fulminant cardiogenic shock. I think for the most part, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the most stable patient population. It also wasn't the sickest. Um, I think, you know, looking at other characteristics, there was nothing that really, um, you know, nothing really much between the groups or stood out just in general uh, that this was alarming that they would conduct this, you know, trial and this intervention on, on this group of patients. All right. So, I mean, the primary endpoint, I know it's not a hard clinical outcome, I think this is, you know, this is always a troublesome when you're creating a trial, right? You know, you can try to go after a hard clinical outcome. You can attempt to make that a composite and, you know, add on more and more outcomes to try to find a statistical significance. I think at a trial like this where they already struggled to find enrollment um, to, to get 600 patients, you know, over what was it, over a five-year period, essentially. Um, you know, I think it would have been tough to have done a hard clinical outcome. You probably would have needed, you know, roughly a few thousand patients to have been able to meet power for statistical significance. So, and we do know that ST resolution is tied with, you know, infarct size and overall outcomes. But, you know, we all know the story of surrogate outcomes and they, they can't always be trusted, but that is what the primary endpoint was. So what did they find here, Alex? Yes, yeah, so for patients on the pharmacoinvasive strategy or receiving the lytics with tenecteplase, ST resolution occurred in 85.2% of patients versus 78.4% of patients in the primary PCI group. In the pharmacoinvasive strategy, the median decline was 3 to 1 millimeters, and the residual median sums of those ST deviations um, overall were between 4.5 versus 5.5 millimeters, respectively, in each group. And then looking at Timmy flow grade was three at last angiography, around 87% in both groups. Hey Alex, for those who don't know, Timmy flow zero versus Timmy flow three. What what are we talking here? Which one which one would be best? Is Timmy flow three our best? My understanding is that a greater Timmy flow corresponds to greater reperfusion. Absolutely, absolutely. So the, you know, Timmy flow three would be essentially normal flow, normal restoration. And so in both groups, it was roughly the same, despite whether they received lytic and then went for PCI within 24 hours, or they were able to directly receive PCI within an hour. Um, so I think that's pretty impressive um, overall in terms of, you know, what we're looking for. We had success. Yep, and then always keeping in mind those patients that went for rescue PCI, which was around 42% of patients that were receiving that pharmacoinvasive strategy. Yeah, so a good chunk still had to go not only for PCI within 24 hours, but for rescue PCI, um, which suggested that the intervention was not completely effective um, initially. Cool. Yeah, then looking at the composite clinical endpoint, which was their other efficacy endpoint, 
That one occurred in 12.8% of patients in the pharmacoinvasive group versus 13.3% in the primary PCI group. So they essentially saw no difference here um, with a confidence interval that crossed one and a relative uh, risk reduction of 0.96, or risk reduction of 0.96, I should say. Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't powered for that, that endpoint, but... At the same time, I guess it's at least promising that we didn't see a trend uh, towards concern in the Lytic group because that's kind of would have been my uh, overt assumption, right, as I started reading this trial. But, yeah. And overall similar to what Stream 1 had found. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was the big thing for me. I was looking directly at that and so like, okay, we got some hard outcomes here. This is where it's going to come down to me. And I was like, no difference. I was like, not even like a, a trend towards something and I was like, okay, that's that's fine with me. And that's what really kind of blew my mind. Because like the ED part of me thinks of this is like, if I know there's times where I would love for a patient to go and get PCI, but that doesn't always happen, even at a site that has PCI. So especially, I remember for me, one of the biggest interventions I made was I told one of the Quartz fellows during the, the, the early beginnings of COVID, they wouldn't take people to right. cap like it wouldn't take him to step take, take him at all until the COVID results came back and it took hours that first generation and I had a young guy with a raging stimulus it was farm D positive like ED farm D positive and he kept coding <laughs> on me and I was like fam my doc said this is a, a STEMI I got three people saying that if you don't take this patient a PCI I'm gonna whip up some alter place or some tech place and I'm gonna give it to him <laughs> like if you don't do that I promise you I'm getting ready to do that and he was like well Start mixing that thing on up real quick. Gave it. He ended up having that. And I was like, this guy got PCI like 18 hours after multiple VFib arrest. <laughs> so. Then you then you consider all of the post-arrest care and and what that can play into before you go to PCI, right? Like even, even confirming neurologic status, you know, that's something that my interventionalist had told me that I want to confirm that, that, that we don't have poor prognostication from a neuro perspective. I'm going to go throw a stent in somebody that we're going to end up making, unfortunately, CMO within a few days. You know, that's come up. I mean, we're at a PCI center and I think pharmacy, we talk about staffing shortages and staffing issues. I'll tell you, our cath lab is not short of those problems either. You know, even an evening overnight, uh, you know, case comes in and they get a second case. And, and we, we've we had a case recently where they had to administer TNK because they just did not have the staffing capability in the cath lab overnight. I mean, it, you know, just because you're at a PCI center doesn't mean you're not going to come across this. You know, we, we get patients from outside centers that have already received lytic. So it's kind of, it's useful to know this. I think the, the half dose is a, a, a little bit novel. There's not a whole lot of literature. I know that yeah. Stream 1 came out, you know, geez, Christ, it's been a decade. 2013 is 10 years ago. I can't believe that. Um, you know, that was a decade ago. Um, but, you know, still, I think this adds to that literature. So I think, Alex, safety, walk us through. Was there a signal for concern still with TNK over primary PCI? So in this case, looking at safety endpoints, particularly intracranial hemorrhage, for patients in the pharmacoinvasive group, it occurred in six patients, or 1.5%. So that percentage was overall similar to what they saw in Stream 1. Yeah. But they do make a couple of caveats in this case. So there were three protocol violations. Um, two out of these patients received excess anticoagulation. So therapeutic IV infraction heparin during that rescue PCI, despite having uh, the full dose low molecular weight heparin. You were literally just talking about this. This is we we were alluding to this earlier. I mean, seriously, but 
Honestly, I think it kind of underscores the value of having pharmacist involvement, right? Why it's so important to have pharmacists in the ED because, you know, that we're going to be the people who obviously are going to pay the most attention to that. What meds did you administer? What has this patient already received? Because clearly two out of the six events that are that are going against TNK in this trial were were likely related to, if not, you know, multifactorial, but likely related to the fact that they gave potentially, actually, because all of the ICHs occurred in those that were under 75. So if they followed the protocol correctly, they received the IV dose of Lovenox. I know that sounds weird to many listeners. They received an IV dose of Lovenox, right, followed by that sub-Q injection. And then on top of that, when they arrived at a PCI center, they received therapeutic doses of Lovenox, or excuse me, heparin on top of that. So, I mean, again, communication, you know, we're going to pay attention to those details. We're going to be the ones concerned about that. I think that that highlights the necessity, you know, the absolute necessity of having a pharmacist involved, especially in cases like these. Yeah, because you got a few minutes. Like when these people get shipped from another center, they get here, handle EKG, this will happen. And then they get ready to get shipped off immediately, whether or not that happens. And for this one here, there's been tons of cases like, hey, don't do that. Like what? Just don't do that. Like, what do you mean? Like, the patient already got Lovenox. And I was like, it's not something I would do, but don't do that. And Or they, they're drawing up, not only could these patients gotten the Lovenox IV and sub-Q, then it's, I accidentally put the, the heparin order set in wrong, and they got 10,000 of the heparin bolus in the higher, the higher dose. So it's a lot that can go wrong. So all your ED PharmDs out there, holla at your boy and make sure you don't. Let them let them do this because again, if we take that away, we're talking less than a one one percent bleeding rate here. That's something to think about. Yeah, the other factor they mentioned was uh, there was a patient with uncontrolled hypertension as well, which underscores considering other risk factors for bleeding, especially patient population that are hypertensive. And then I think you know other safety wise, I know they looked at non intracranial major bleeds, no difference. Um, you know, overall stroke rates, no difference. I think that, you know, it's, it's good. It's a good signal here for a pharmacoinvasive strategy that involves this reduced dose TNK. Anything, uh, you know, subgroup analysis wise, I know they had a a few pre-specified selections. Any difference there that's notable, Alex? So looking at the time to randomization, they stratified three different groups for those patients who were less than an hour between an hour or two or greater than two hours. And they Mm. did see that the pharmacoinvasive strategy favored those who received it early or in less than an hour. So that was something that was notable to me looking at the subgroups. Which I, you know, I think that uh, time is muscle, right? I mean, you know, time is brain for stroke, time is muscle for, for MIs. Um, That golden hour that we talk about a lot of time for the effectiveness of fibrinolytics and STEMI. I think that's kind of holding true here in the subgroup. Um, but I guess otherwise it's nice that there wasn't um, interaction amongst others that at least, you know, favored PCI or, or told us a trend towards other uh, a different intervention. I think one of the things I do want to highlight is, you know, this pharmacoinvasive strategy is something that's adopted into the latest European guidelines, the 2023 European guidelines. Um, they, you know, they involve this pharmacoinvasive strategy. And not only that, they highlight uh, a recommendation for a 50% dose reduction of TNK in those that are 75 or older. 
that's mainly basing it off of the stream one trial. You know, stream two now adds evidence for patients all the way down to 60 years of age. Um, I think it highlights this continued challenge that, you know, I know that we're lucky enough to be at PCI centers. You know, we oftentimes are not going to see this, but, you know, data from early, uh, you know, late 2000s, so 2010, 2011, you know, still about 50 million Americans were not uh, within one hour of a PCI center. So in all likelihood, 50 million Americans, this was now over a decade ago, so that number may be larger, were you know, would be someone who's eligible for this strategy for receiving potentially, if they're 60 or older, half toast T and K to be shipped for either rescue PCI or coronary angiography within 24 hours. Um, you know, and, and there was a analysis put out by the uh, AHA that identified that, you know, despite even if you held rural and urban communities, even even if you held those constant, uh, it remained that low income and highly Hispanic communities were still at a higher risk for having larger delays to PCI. And so that highlights, again, where we put a lot of our resources. I think this is a big problem within healthcare. A lot of the resources are still going to resource-rich areas already. So, yes, we, are, we have grown in the number of PCI-capable centers. We have a growing number of interventionalist-ready uh, hospitals and facilities. But where are those facilities? They're already located in places that are already resource-rich. And so that kind of gap continues to grow despite continued funding into that infrastructure. So... I think it's kind of nice to have, uh, you know, some evidence regarding this process, but I mean, some limitations where we definitely have some concerns with, with the trial, obviously, um, you know, I think to highlight hard clinical outcomes weren't really yep. looked at. What else? Alex? Yeah. So having that, we, although we do have some outcomes that were clinical, this study was not powered to show a difference in those, only powered to show that difference in the percent reduction in ST elevations. We also have that possibility of the meds being different or heterogeneity between those in the primary PCI group in which they followed the local guidelines versus the patients in the tenectophilase group or the pharmacoinvasive strategy in which they had outlined the protocol. And again, we have already mentioned the familiar familiarity with the anoxaparin versus IV heparin. And then the protocol violations for me is a big one too. Like, let's say if we had not seen this, would the results have been different? And would we have a stronger sense of feeling comfortable with this half-dose to neck to place in mm. this patient population? Yeah. And yeah. then for obvious reasons, the interventions being unblinded could also introduce some bias. Yeah, but again, it's hard with these groups and the way they are assigned to their respective interventions. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Jim? you think this is something... To consider? I, I think we, it's something to have in your toolkit. It's something to educate on. It's something to have. I'm about, I'm one positive observational study away from this being something a little bit more more so for me. I, I, I don't think I need one more you know, big study, but I'm on one more you know decent observational study of seeing how this really works in the practice. Because like, again, if we're, if everyone's pushing IV, Lovenox and, and doing all this stuff across the board, that that's cool. I want to see what people are really really are doing. So I I think I'm think I'm there for, in rural shops. Again, I work at a place that has a lot of sister hospitals that are interpreting people to us. That may not be a that that may not be something that I'm like, hey, you guys are flying here. The weather's bad. Go ahead and give them to the place. 
And if if I if if we can go ahead and give them half of that dose. So there may be some times where I'm on the radio with our with our doc, and they're saying, "Hey, I'm sending this person over, but it, it's a weather delay, and I got to send them by ground." It usually would take me 30 minutes to get them there, but realistically, going to take me an hour and a half. That may be the population that I'm like, "Hey, what's your thoughts on this? This I know they're going to get here. I know we can do PCI when we get here. We, that's something I would do. Or again, if we're just getting it's one of those days and you got six people lined up, ready to go to PCI. And I know that I got one more coming in and they're 30 minutes ETA. I'm like, this probably won't happen in time. Let's go ahead and, and, and give them an, another option. And this would be a conversation. Of course, me, my ED docs, my cars, carts, fellow MP, whoever, whoever's down in the ED. Hey, what's the realistic? Cause everyone wants to say, Oh yeah, we're going to get them there. But like that's on paper. Let's, let's have a real conversation on the side over here. You know what's really going to happen? It's like yeah, it's going to take us about you know six hours. If that's the case, <laughs> I got something for you. So again, it I was intrigued, man. I was really uh, when, as soon as I read it the first time, I was like, I mean, it didn't have to show me any difference anywhere, and I was I was surprised by that. So no difference is like a difference to me because then we're buying. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> no difference is a difference to me. We're buying time now. If you're telling me that I can get this. The same or no major statistical difference at hour 18 as we do in two hours. That's a big deal for me. What do you guys think? Yeah, agreed. Interested to see how this is applied to clinical practice. And if we slowly gain more data of patients using this strategy of half-dose connected place. And like you mentioned, possibly looking at observational studies down the line, something more in a real world patient population. Um, but some gaps do remain uh, in terms of evidence. We have stronger evidence for tenecteplase and not mm-hmm. really all to place as yep. much. So yep. that's a question mark that remains out there. Which um, our, our shop moved to tenecteplase probably about a year now. Um, but before then, you know, when COVID was heavy, I, I'll say this, the, the, the number one use of lytic for STEMI at our shop are patients that are elderly that are DNR, DNI, and they do not want to rescind that mm-hmm. to go to the cath lab. And I have used lytics way more often than I thought I would at a PCI shop for that reason. And it's usually patients who have a ton of comorbidities, a ton of risk, have come to the decision that they don't want to be, you know, resuscitated or intubated. And so, you know, we go mucking around in their coronaries, you know, we may iatrogenically cause a, a VTV fib arrest. And obviously we'd like to shock you out of that because, you know, that's not something that you caused. Um, and so, you know, the, for them not to rescind that, for us to not be able to go forward with a PCI, I will say, I feel like this gives us somewhat of an option to discuss with the family and the patient to say, you know, it's not without risk, um, but if, there's, if we're not going to go to the cath lab, and there's literally nothing else to do. Do we can consider a half dose TNK um, at this at this juncture and and see if that provides some benefit? I don't know. I I think it's something that I I, I would discuss. That obviously, like you yeah. mentioned, it's a conversation with everyone involved, and and then the patient and their family, obviously too. Um, I think it's a, a worthwhile conversation, especially if they're you know not uh, willing to go for an invasive procedure. But yeah, I think, you know, we, we still have some gaps. I'd love to see some real world data. Um, love to see some data with heparin because um, I know that that's all my docs are going to want to order. No one, no one's even touching Lovenox. Not even close. If I said the, if I said the word IV Lovenox, I don't even know if our Epic could handle that. We probably can't even order it. Okay. 
Med safety would just jump out of the closet somewhere <laughs> and just like you're on paid leave until further notice. So go ahead and get out of here. You've been listening to those podcasts too much. Exactly. <laughs> all right, let's wrap up with all the conclusions we have. I think we spoke about most of them. Let's wrap this up. Yeah, so take-home points, primary PCI preferred in our patients if able to get it with it timely. So for the trial, it was 60 minutes, but guideline recommended is 120 minutes, so two hours. And then half-dose tenecteplase for our older patient population in this case. 60 or older is an option to have in our toolkit and considering all those risks, benefits, and patient-specific scenarios, like those patients who are not willing to rescind their DNR, DNI, um, or don't want to undergo an invasive strategy or in terms of timing. So it's something that we have available to use. Um, and pharmacists are important. I'm going to say it again. Communication, anticoagulation, the details, that to me stood out. That to me stood out a lot. And it's like, you clearly didn't have a pharmacist here doing, doing those six cases. Because I'm like, blood pressure, I got you, fam. I got yep, you. Yep. Again. Yep. Even with the clopidogrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Establishing that 300 mandatory is part of the protocol for everyone. And that was different from stream one, too, which yeah. they specified the age cutoff of 75 to do the 300 milligrams of clopidogrel versus none. Right. So, again, right. pharmacists are important. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like you got to form so hard or something, you know? <laughs> it's almost exactly, like that. Man, exactly. All right. So, for pharmacy week, you know? Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And guys, again, this is going to be dope. So any last thing before we close out? I think I've already said some of my take-home points. Yeah. Um, I'm a, I'm, I think I am going to reach for this. In the right patient, with the right discussion, um, you know, whether that's a timing situation, a situational in terms of staffing criteria or the patient's wishes, I am going to reach for this, um, you know, despite only having these two trials. I think the risk uh, warrants a discussion for a possible benefit with this reduced dose. And so I think it's something to be, to be discussed. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you guys for, for coming on again. Every, every time I see a cool study like this and it's carts related, I feel bad because Nick knows he's going to he's going to hear from me. So I'll, I'll always reach out. But just this is another exciting tool to have in our in our toolbox. And for all you guys that are listening, if there's any uh, questions about this, we're going to go ahead and put this in the, in the show notes. So, again, I close out the same way I close out every episode, guys. You don't have to be a pharmacist. And working at ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard.